Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 10th episode of the DCVC podcast. I know it's been 10 weeks now, and I've had such a great time speaking to investors investing in tech startups in India. Well, if you haven't checked out the others, I'd urge you to listen to them all and soak in some great insights on the startup ecosystem and advise on a bunch of subjects, including fundraising, structuring and scaling early stage companies, among others. Well, to mark the 10th episode today, I have with me Abhishek Prasad, the managing partner at Cornerstone Venture Partners, an early stage fund focused on backing startups that are technology enablers, both in India and abroad. Abhishek is an IIMB alumnus, committee member at NASCOM, and has previously spearheaded the investment team at GenNext Ventures Fund, part of Reliance Industries Limited. So without wasting any more time, let's jump straight into the episode and listen to more from Abhishek Prasad. Here we go. So hi, Abhishek. Thanks for joining me today. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. How's it going? Very good, Akash. Thanks for having me. And uh, this is probably the first time I'm doing something like this. Uh, so I'm in, I'm excited. Yeah, that, that, that's awesome. I'm, I'm glad to be the first one who got you onto this. So <laughs> I'm Thank really you. interested in learning about what attracted you to venture capital. And, you know, if you could share some background story about how Cornerstone Venture Partners also came about, that would be great along the way. But I'd love to hear you know, how your whole career began and how did it come along to where you are today? Absolutely happy to share. So, you know, basically I started as a, as a techie, as a software engineer, as most kids in India do. And this was some 20 years back and soon enough, uh, got into an MBA. I was primarily doing management consulting after that and uh, spent a few years with Accenture. Then I was with IBM in their uh, corporate development teams, M&A teams, and that's when I got a flavor of uh, transactions and investments. I also worked for a boutique consulting firm called Boston Analytics, where again, I was supporting a lot of uh, P funds, VC funds all over the world, actually helping them with their portfolio and with their uh, you know, emerging market strategies. And uh, in between, I also was an entrepreneur for for about four years where I was uh, running something very different. I wouldn't call it a startup. It was more of a manufacturing setup, manufacturing uh, uh, construction material and uh, steel and those kind of things, which gave me a very, very good flavor of uh, entrepreneurship as well. And, uh, you know, that I would say I was, it was not uh, a super successful stint. And it, it was at a time when the global markets were burning down and crashing down. And that led me into uh, really experiencing a very different side of entrepreneurship where I was dealing with, uh, you know, not only counterparts who were uh, big manufacturers and suppliers, but all the way to logistics suppliers. And uh, you would, on one end, interact with uh, with somebody who owned a, a billion-dollar company versus, on the other side, a transporter who you're trying to hack into working for you in an efficient way. 
So I really enjoyed that stint of being an entrepreneur. And uh, towards the end of it, got out, got back into consulting and eventually landed up in Reliance Industries in helping them manage their portfolio, their investment portfolio. And uh, that was the most exciting where, you know, I saw that because of my experience of having been an entrepreneur, my entire mindset, which was primarily initially more of a finance persons changed into really relating to these entrepreneurs and having a great time working with them, working through the problems that they were working on. And uh, I thought this is something I really enjoy. And that's how I ended up in venture. Yeah, so Reliance was more of a corporate VC kind of a role, obviously a very strategic investment standpoint where you know, you even if something made great financial sense as a standalone investment, it may not, would not make uh, strategic sense, say, for Reliance Industries to put in the money. And those models were very interesting to try and push towards our businesses and get them to get excited and participate. But it was a very different hat from a financial VC, which led us to, you know, over the four years, four and a half years that I was with uh, Reliance is actually heading their investment teams after I started working initially as heading their portfolio. It, it led me to having a very, very interesting anti-portfolio and uh, obviously got me and Rajiv, my co-founder, who was also part of the same ecosystem. He was leading partnerships for Reliance uh, and uh, GenX Fund thinking about, hey, why don't we do this ourselves? There's enough value to be created. And that's when we uh, conceived Cornerstone. This was sometime in 2017 is when we started thinking about it. And 2018 is when we launched the fund. Yeah. That's great. That's a colorful journey. Thank you so much for putting it across the way that you did. So I'll have two follow-up questions. The first one, being an entrepreneur yourself, do you see entrepreneurs making better VCs because of their experience? I don't know if we can generalize that, but entrepreneurs definitely make for uh, better people to engage with portfolio companies or other entrepreneurs understanding what they're going through and, uh, uh, you know, really probably handholding them or working with them or mentoring them through the journey. That adds a lot of, uh, you know, I would say value, add-on value, and that's what uh, you know, probably an entrepreneur is looking for. So from that perspective, right. from an investor company's perspective, for sure. And, uh, you know, a VC who's been an entrepreneur is probably a good guy to have alongside you. Uh, you know, obviously uh, not taking away from the pure play finance guys who can also help in various other ways in terms of how do you raise the right kind of capital and all of that. So probably a good mix of the two and uh, maybe, you know, work with funds who have both of these elements with them. And I think most funds do. Many, many VCs, uh, VC funds actually have ex-entrepreneurs as well as finance wizards, right? So, yeah. And great. Second, second follow-up to that was what value does a corporate VC add to a startup uh, that is different from an angel or a traditional venture capitalist from your experience? Also, I think it's, uh, that's an interesting question. And, uh, you know, when we were talking about Scrum VC earlier, uh, you know, what I liked about you guys was that uh, 
obviously you're talking about bringing all your LPs or large corporations to the startups as customers. And that's the biggest value add for a corporate VC. Uh, it depends on who you are. If you are, you know, standalone corporate, just doing one business, one industry, then your scope gets limited and, you know, the startups you work with, uh, they, they probably see you as a customer or as a partner. And as a customer, when they can, when you can be as a cooperative direct user of that startup's innovation, and as a partner, when you can, you know, take an example of an Accenture Ventures where you can take the startup to hundreds of your clients, right? So lots of market access, lots of customer access and ability to really scale quickly and go to market. I think that's what a corporate VC brings and which is invaluable. And other valuations and other valuations and the pricing of the round itself very different when a corporate gets involved versus an institutional venture capital when they when they are looking at investments or does that not really matter? I think what matters is the time at or the stage at which you bring in a corporate and if it is a strategic corporate where you may eventually get acquired by that company. I think that becomes, uh, you know, somewhat of a challenging uh, situation. If there are a few more years till you want to scale and till that acquisition decision happens, because a lot of times once you have a corporate on the cap table and it could be a strategic investor who may actually become the home of that startup, other VCs shy away from that deal and, uh, you know, probably don't want to get in because uh, if the corporate starts, you know, directing the startup towards their agendas and, uh, you know, the growth prospects really get uh, subdued. I mean, that's my view sometimes. And it, it also becomes a challenge in terms of exit multiples that you can expect because the corporate's already in there. The, the guy who's going to acquire the company is already on the cap table. So your multipliers that you can expect as an independent VC becomes challenging. So yeah, so it is uh, uh, an interesting situation to deal with. And uh, I think in general, if there is a corporate just coming in the cap table along with other VCs, typically the valuations don't affect. But if a corporate's leading the round and it's bringing a lot of business and could be somebody who potentially acquires it, you you already start seeing subdued valuations. Ah, that's very interesting. I like how you put it across that way, making the comparison to strategic value that a corporate brings as opposed to just bringing capital to uh, the table. You know, just yeah. shifting gears a little bit, um, in the valley, the venture market, especially over the last few years, was at its peak in terms of infused capital in startups. But that's not kind of how, and it's almost kind of settling in right now. However, in India, the market has been on a constant rise and 2019 was another great year for startups. So I have two yeah. questions for you here. Firstly, sure. what's driving the continued interest and rise in the country? And two, mm -hmm. is that concerning to you as an investor? Has the FOMO factor entered the in Indian venture capital market? Very interesting questions. And uh, I think I'll, I'll try and answer that with how we at Cornerstone have seen this ecosystem, what we believe has changed here and why we think there is a place for a unique thesis and uh, 
you know how things are going to transform going forward so if you sure. think about the indian ecosystem as such and how did you know the first bunch of vcs get excited about india it was really macro driven huge consumer market big population demographics and things like that uh, english speaking uh, good digital adoption potential i'd say potential and i'm talking about say 2010 to 2014 15 and at that point if you look at the activity that happened it was primarily uh you know me to models or copy models which were just you know uh, being copied from the west or successful models which are coming down and primarily b2c investment saying hey this worked there and can work here and let's do the same thing and over four years i think a lot of those opportunities and areas got completely inundated with various startups emerging there and a lot of capital going there and i think in about 2015 16 a lot of those things started failing 16 was a slow year for vc in india we saw a lot of uh, bigger write offs of uh, people putting in hundreds of millions of dollars in b2c models which didn't work at the same time if i compare what is happening in b2b at that time b2b as an ecosystem or as an opportunity base had not yet evolved in india because india if you look back at what kind of talent pool is emerging it's really coming from the services market right you have large it services companies and folks have been there and they're coming out of that and starting uh, businesses so there were a lot of service driven models emerging and fewer product driven models in b2b during that time but what this entire frenzy led to where you know lots of big checks were being written in b2c and to startups which were set up by college kids and coming out of dorm rooms and things like that then you had folks with real ideas people who had you know 10 years 15 years 20 years of experience in a certain industry certain domain actually got encouraged to start doing their company start building the products that they wanted to build to solve some interesting business problems that they had grappled with themselves in their own domains and we started seeing a lot of those guys start emerging you know fr- from that time you know if i look at the time frame between 15 to 20 or 15 to 19 we have seen that you know the entrepreneurs that are coming out particularly in the b2b side a product or guys with gray hair or guys who actually experience the problems that they're solving so i've seen that you know in our ecosystem the quality of entrepreneurs and the quality of problems they're solving has really transformed and has actually uh become very exciting and very interesting rather than say a laundry app versus somebody who's going to change the aviation industry right so right it's a very very interesting mix and uh, this is a probably a natural evolution of an ecosystem such as india which was primarily initially driven off uh, the macros and uh, consumer opportunity and now for folks like us who really care about business impact and opportunities where real businesses sustainable models are emerging technologies making a big difference as an enabler to traditional businesses transforming the way they operate in the future and how what they do over the next 5 10 years is where we see a lot of uh, excitement emerging in india do the b2c opportunities do the big check big bang 
opportunities continue yes of course they continue some of those are fairly mature we still see large checks being written and those are big bets which have actually taken off are you see, going to see too many new such models are we going to see too many oyos and uh, you know too many uh, say even flip cards if i give those examples in the future i doubt because a lot of those large big market opportunities have already been tapped in so what you're looking for now is real innovation and opportunities where these kind of uh, models are emerging which are transforming traditional businesses and that's where we are focused and i think uh, from a fomo standpoint that phase is over where there was a lot <laughs> of fomo and everybody wanted to come to india and do this and i was recently in sf and i was meeting a bunch of fund funds and i was trying to sell the india story and Uh, what have you? And everybody knew the India story. There was nothing new about it. People had exposure to India already. Global institutions have already taken their expo- exposures. So it's it's uh, that phase is done, and I think we're now in a more mature phase. We're in a more interesting and evolved phase, and which is very exciting for us. But it gives yeah. me so much happiness and pleasure to to learn that there is no FOMO. That currently exists, and people are already aware about that. It's 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 about time. I I, yeah. I like to highlight two things that you actually raised in that uh, in your answer. One you mentioned about solving problems that you know startups are solving problems that they have probably faced, and mm-hmm. uh, it also something that stood out on your website to me was that you meant it, it's mentioned there that your fund invests in passionate founders. So. Yeah. trying to connect the dots here what are some of the essential qualities you look for in a great founding team and a follow up to the same question is other than the founding team what are some of the other things that attract you to a startup sure great question and i think uh, you know the standard thing product market fit founder product fit obviously you look for these things but if i have to give you a our thought process i think we look for three things in the founders or founder founding team of course you want a product market fit you want a product which is already got accepted there's some amount of commercialization especially when you're going early stage you still want customer validation so that's obviously one but i think what matters to us more is a founder market fit which is does the founder come from the domain does he understand this has he seen this uh you know problem himself as he dealt with it himself so and that's how he knows how to really solve it right and that's your second and this is not limited to the one to the key founder but also the founding team or even the team uh, one level below so founder market fit is something what we care about the third thing we care about and this is an interesting conversation that we keep having uh, in our teams is a founder fund fit a lot of times as mm. a fund and as a as an investor you see an opportunity you see a space you get super excited about it and what we also name it is hey founder vision versus in- investor imagination right so the founder is building something and the investor jumps in and says hey we can do seven other things right and let's build this and let's build that and let's build this and let's build that a lot of times we see that the founders just become yes men saying yeah sure of course we'll do it and i am excited with your vision and with your imagination and those kind of things 
obviously the guy's going to try and get a check from you and he's going to say yes of course let's do it but a lot of times uh, you know once the money goes in the founder has his own vision or his own path he does what he wants and the investor goes in with his own expectations saying hey we're going to do seven other things and that's what this guy believes in and i think that creates a lot of bad blood after the investments happen and therefore our attempt and our effort is really to ensure that we sign up on the founder's vision and we all work towards a direction which leads to that and obviously it's a meandering path which leads to a common end goal but uh, right from day one we don't want to be putting our ideas into the founders heads and minds it doesn't mean we don't work with them in setting the direction of the company or the goals or the ambitions of the company but honestly we want complete sign off and i think we are very careful about uh trying to bring the founder to a certain uh ambition rather than enforce or just lay it out for them and eventually if there is no alignment whether you know we get aligned with them or not uh is is one of the biggest decisions for us when we invest right saying that okay this guy wants to take it somewhere else we in our hearts feel differently and if we have, you know get down to saying no to a company we actually laid out saying that this is why we think we don't want to be doing this and if you ever go in this on this path and we see evidence of that then we can pick up the conversation at that point so it's something that's very important to us and uh, i think we've been consciously working on on that aspect yeah so i think that's that's how we look at founders no i love that part you know i've heard a lot of vcs on other podcasts and i've also read up a little bit about it where they mention that some of the reasons for startups why, why they fail is an over involvement from maybe maybe the lead vc or somebody on the board and that kind of causes them to pivot very drastically and that might end up in um, a failure and the failure could be them shutting down or them not being able to raise subsequent rounds so that's a great point that you actually made and i i'd like to highlight at this point that the founder fund fit i have asked this question to some other people as well and it's very interesting that you mentioned this and uh, i'm i'm very keen and curious to explore and trying to see and we'll try to also see how many other people trying to think about a, a fund and a product founder and a, and a fund fit that's very interesting to me sure so based on our your experience how in how involved should an investor be what is the ideal uh, scenario here if you're an investor investing in an early stage company excellent question and i think uh, i'll talk about our approach and what we are thinking about as such in most of our deals we're going to be lead investors and wherever we are leads we like to be on the board because that's one way to ensure that uh, folks at partner level or director level are working and engaged with the founders in a framework which at least ensures they do that because a lot of times everyone's busy with the pace of their own uh careers and activities and that becomes a little bit challenging on how much time you're able to commit to your founders and at least having that kind of a framework helps you do that your portfolio teams uh are actually working you know obviously on a regular basis with the founders or with the startups but that's more an mis level uh interaction and you're trying to just track the performance of the company and do those kind of things 
but it's really a meaningful conversations that can happen we in fact apart from board meetings which are okay framework driven a little bit more formal and obviously a lot about governance and compliance we also do a, a partner founder kind of a catch up uh, as as frequently sometimes as 45 days right to ensure that that kind of uh, interaction is ongoing and the founder has enough uh options to bounce off their ideas because obviously when your startup things are changing uh, dramatically and very quickly and there are a lot of times you need to take certain decisions and it's important for you to have uh, somebody to bounce that off one of the things that we're trying to build is a is a ceo coaching network or a ceo mentoring network which takes this way beyond just the funds partners and directors it actually takes it uh, to a bunch of very senior folks in in the ecosystem from the industry and again these are all um, you know optional for founders who come into our portfolio nothing that we enforce of course and uh, you know the most important thing of course that uh, we continue to believe in it from our value system perspective is that we have to be able to give our founders our investees enough comfort for them to be fully transparent with us if we see that you know we are uh, you know uh, scaring them or we are over involved or we are, we have a very uh, negative attitude then we will soon you know be getting a lot of filtered information which is something that can make us nervous saying that hey we don't we want to hear the bad news first we want to know what's wrong so we can all work towards it together and that's uh, that kind of comfort building is is very key for us and that's something that we've been very consciously working on again so yes to summarize board seats are something that we like to take but i think we want to be very friendly investors and guys who you want to go back to and fall back on whenever you have uh, difficult decisions to make and you feel fully comfortable in being transparent about what you're doing right that that's great so what are some of the areas that you're investing or some of the areas that you're really excited about for this year and and uh, investments that you probably want to make in that space sometime in 2020 i think uh, you know broadly we define our thesis as investing in tech enablers of business because we are primarily backing b2b models uh, which are easy to scale which are sustainable which are solving real business problems and leveraging technology to you know, solve real business problems and broadly if i classify it into three buckets we talk about consumer tech enablers which are technologies which are helping consumer businesses do better which is helping them understand their consumers better engage with them better and you know go deeper into the into the pockets of the consumers engage with them leveraging technology and that's where ai and these kind of things come in that's a key bucket for us the second bucket is of course enterprise uh, business intelligence is what we look for and this is typical saas but we're very vertical focused in this so opportunities which are focused in a particular industry or in a particular vertical going deep into it so vertical saas is our second large bucket that we're investing in and thirdly you know some experimental capital will go into what we call as core tech deep tech foundational tech which are typically platform play 
we don't see too much of that coming from india and therefore these opportunities we, we may be investing or co-investing with folks like yourself in the us or sometimes in israel we're still trying to evaluate this but this is going to be a small part of our portfolio if i look at the uh, the spread of the portfolio across industries it's it you know if i look at you know probably five key industries that we are uh, tapping into its uh, retail e-commerce tech enablers that's mm-hmm. one fintech is the second the third is logistics and supply chain the fourth is healthcare and the fifth of course is enterprise right so all our investments will fit into these five buckets and uh, I think we've made investments today in retail e-commerce, in fintech, and in enterprise. So this year, uh, we will be looking at uh, some uh, a few more investments in logistics and supply chain, and some in health tech. But we still have room for all other sectors as well. We're still building our portfolio. It's early days for us, so all these five areas are exciting for us at this point. Are there any particular trends that are emerging out of these uh, five sectors that you just mentioned that you know mm-hmm. outside investors, investors who are not uh, looking at India should be aware of? Yeah, so I think uh, one of the key things to understand is that how have these sectors matured, right? And there have been in each of these sectors a, a bunch of noisy investments which have gone after the low hanging fruits and the, and obviously the larger pies and a lot of people have made big portfolios tapping into uh, those kind of opportunities like if i take fintech it's a payment wallets and those kind of things right and it's it's what so let me give you an example of what kind of opportunities we like right and what we see is going to work for the next three to five years. It's really, for example, one of our investing companies is all about predicting NPAs, automating collections, helping larger financial institutions actually manage their uh, their books much better in a much cleaner way, right? And that makes a real impact on, on the PNL of the, of the financial institution. And this has uh, no issues in terms of, say, adoption, in terms of bringing millions of people on and keeping them there and giving them discounts, freebies, whatever, to right. ensure that they continue to use these services. So we, you know, we care about, if I put it in a nutshell, uh, impact scale, right? And what that mm-hmm. really means is that our, our companies with their uh, value proposition should be able to scale to, uh, you know, 10 million, 20 million uh, revenue with less than 200, 300 customers, right? That's it. It's it's very simple. That means that you're creating enough impact to get enough value from the customers. And that becomes our one of our uh, key diligence points saying that, what is the average customer value or average ticket size that you get from each account? And if that's anywhere in the thousands of dollars a year, it doesn't make any, I mean, $5,000 a year, $10,000 a year, doesn't make any sense to us saying that, okay, you're not even making $100,000, $200,000 impact and therefore the guy is paying you $10,000 a year. The impact we're looking for 
is probably in the millions and the kind of value you get from each customer should be in hundreds of thousands of dollars. And that's how we see uh, opportunity to scale. So if anyone's looking at opportunities in India, these are far and few, hard to come by, but these are the kind of opportunities that I think are now meaningful in India. And that's what you gotta be looking for because when you talk unit economics, when you talk sustainability, this is, I think, the mechanism behind doing that. Right. So, yeah. Very interesting. So, in that scenario, in that case, how do you mitigate against false positives and false negatives, especially in the B2B space? That's a great question. And <clears throat> I think uh, false negatives if I can answer that first, I don't know what mm -hmm. to do with that because you've probably already lost them, right? So they're not in your portfolio and you've not made that decision if I'm understanding you right. In terms of the false positives, you've got them in your portfolio, you're working through them, you're working with them. And I, it's probably a failure of your diligence process which actually led to that happening. Uh, you've got to do what it takes to ensure that some of these metrics are met and if not i think we are fairly uh, i would say mature enough to take our early write-offs in thing in fact we believe that our time effort energies are limited and we can't be spending that uh, behind companies which are not scaling and that doesn't mean that you know we just disown the entrepreneur but if you give me uh, an option or if you ask me where would I spend most of my time so I'm going to be spending most of my time behind the winners right? with the winners and <laughs> obviously you know at a VC fund you know today we have uh, you know, a team of nine people and we're not going to increase that to too many more maximum two three more people and you've got to manage a portfolio of 30 companies 40 companies what have you you'd rather focus your efforts on on uh, the 20 companies or 15 companies where you do where you continue to believe in what they're building and where you're going to write bigger checks as follow-ons so yeah so that's how i think we we work with it and it's it's a natural outcome to have uh, false positives and false negatives in both cases so that's something that you one learn needs to learn to deal with and accept yeah that's a great point then staying on subject what are some of the reasons why investors fall in love with startups that don't tend to succeed in the B2B space? Hmm. I think it's, there is a huge bias, you know, all, how many ever frameworks you may build and how many interest, ever interesting uh, diligence points you may have. So for example, we do something called as, you know, customer diligence apart from, mm -hmm legal, financial, commercial, legal and financial, our partners do commercial is something our teams do, which is, you know, speaking to your founders, customers, suppliers, existing investors, teams, what have you, vendors, all that. And what we also like to do is, is a customer diligence or a user diligence saying that let's take it to one or two users who are potential users of this technology especially when it's b2b and get their feedback on this a lot of times you know the user actually becomes a customer for that company whether we eventually invest or not in that company 
but that's a very critical part of the feedback that we take so we do our best to ensure that uh, biases that come in especially when you meet a founder when you look at a space a lot of times it correlates to your life to what you've seen before to industries you worked in and you think that hey this is a big opportunity and you know whatever uh, bias you may have around that you may start liking a particular founder or loving a particular opportunity and you may just convince yourself towards putting money into it but if you build enough frameworks maybe some of those biases can be can be eliminated and if you take enough feedback before you make those investments then they can be eliminated but it's a natural human instinct to like some and not like some and a lot of times you know uh, you may dislike something which is very interesting just because of a certain quirk of a founder and those kind of things <laughs> i think the more you can eliminate the better it is right so i don't know but it it does exist now i'm on the same page as you are when you know when we speak to companies or we have companies intelligence we try and do customer uh, customer reference calls we try and also speak to investors who are participating in that round and why and what excites them to really try and mitigate those you know those reasons as to why we might end up investing in a company that might not really have everything that it takes to succeed so we try and see and try and tap into as many resources as possible and speak to people and experts in the industry who might be able to give us those insights that we might not have maybe because it's a technical product we don't have too much technical expertise in that space or it's just something where maybe there's a lot of competition and at the same time when there's a lot of competition there's something a lot of investors backing it for a reason so we try and understand yeah. and investigate those reasons to really find uh, why we should be co-investing with somebody so i i'm on the same page as you are on that so Excellent. i would like to like head towards a lighter part of the podcast where you know i try yeah. to understand your your philosophy your thinking and where you really come from and just you could probably consider this all, almost like a rapid fire but you can take your time in answering these questions mm-hmm. i'm really yeah. curious to find out what you know what what do you know now about venture capital that you wish you knew when you first started investing <laughs> okay um it's a lot of hard work yeah so yeah <laughs> and, uh, is uh uh-huh. um yeah it's all it's it sounds all so let me give you a perspective of uh the, you know when i was not a vc to now actually being a vc right so when you're not a vc it looks all hunky dory it looks um so exciting that hey this guy is an investor and he's mr money bags or whatever mm-hmm. and that's your outside perspective but when you come in and eventually you're just an entrepreneur and you're working as hard as all your entrepreneurs you're you have so much fiduciary responsibility you're responsible for the money you raised from your investors it's it's uh far more challenging than what it appears like from outside right and i think that's that's uh, an interesting learning because even today when i meet folks who are not from this industry or who just have that this that view that hey or a vc oh my god and whatever so it's it's really a huge demystification when you actually become one and one of my friends used to tell me that it's uh, it's like running on two treadmills at the same time right which is <laughs> which is basically your 
on one side it's your portfolio and on the other side it's your lps so it's it's not an easy one right so yeah so a follow up to that would be what's more difficult raising money as an entrepreneur or raising money as an investor for your fund i would say and this is bias i would say definitely <laughs> raising money for uh, for a fund because as an entrepreneur guess what you have a product you can do a demo you can actually show the show it show it working and you can you know uh, actually uh, show the commercial the returns or revenues that are emerging from your product and your company but as a vc when you're raising money it's all about selling a thesis it's about selling ideas it's about uh, you know trying to eventually convince an investor that uh, guess what you are more capable of taking the decisions on where his money should be invested than him and that is a really tough sell right so uh, that's it's definitely more challenging i would say would you say that's the toughest part of being in venture capital mm, especially in your first few funds i guess but mm-hmm. uh, yeah once you're a mature fund then i think i don't know i think the exits are also going to be very very challenging right so at this stage Just for like- us for us the last uh, 18 months have all been about fundraising and whatever so maybe that's why i'm a little bit biased but uh, you know delivering on what you're selling is probably going to be much tougher than this so we're in for a long ride here absolutely and uh, one thing you'd like to change about venture capital in india i think uh, interesting question i think the one thing i'd like to change in my view is uh, uh, bigger checks early right and it's happening slowly but i it's it's still not what you see in the valley saying that hey uh, angel gave me a million dollars right and now mm-hmm. i'm going to start building and he believes in this idea and stuff in india you you know your angel investor can give you something as low as 5 lakh rupees which is ridiculous right and what do you build with something like that right and then you have somebody sitting on your cap table and questioning you and doing whatever and half the time uh, the founder uh, is just busy trying to raise the next round because he knows he has x months of capital and he's just trying and you know trying to ensure that he keeps the lights on right so i think that is one of the biggest reasons again why uh, startups fail is because they never raised enough capital early on which uh, creates a bit of a challenge for them uh, especially in in a very critical time when when they're getting revenues in when they need to be focused on customers they end up being focused on next round investors so in my view if there was a way man we we have a few ideas on that we like to do a small check up front and then a bigger check later and we tell the founder that listen now this is the kind of exposure we're going to take in your company if you deliver on these milestones we don't want you to worry about fundraising now for the next 18 months just focus on delivering on your milestones and we are taking care of the of all the capital needs of the company so our thought process is pretty much like that and we may bring in co-investors along and say instead of 
backing somebody for 18 months, 24 months, why don't we do this together and ensure that the guy has a runway for 36 months and maybe, you know, he may need more money before that 36 may come down to 30 months or whatever, but working together, collaborating with other early stage VCs is something that we're trying to do to ensure that founders have enough capital and enough runway for them to, you know, survive through the critical period of when they need to focus on customers and ensuring those relationships stay rather than spending their energy on raising capital because that's really a wasteful activity for them, to be honest. Right. So any advice that you'd like to give from your time previously from a corporate perspective, from currently as a, as a venture capitalist, any advice that you'd like to give startups on fundraising? I think... Um, uh, fundraising by no means is a measure of your success, right? So I think that's the most important thing that uh, a founder or a VC both need to keep in mind because fundraising is just the start of the journey. And it's really uh, a lot of responsibility that comes along with funds that you raise. And it in, again, applies to both kinds of people here, uh, and you need to be uh, prepared for that kind of responsibility when you actually raise that capital and then deliver on it. So this is, there is no quick success that's going to be uh, happening. And again, fundraising is just the first step. You need to uh, understand that the journey is much longer than that. So that's my only advice to founders and to VCs because a lot of times we meet startups saying that, hey, I raised 2 million and I raised 3 million and I'm great. And really what happened with that money and what did you have to deliver and how much have you delivered and how have you changed the way you had been working when you were bootstrapping, right? So... Uh, we would like founders to consciously make those changes that I now have raised capital. So I'm doing these 20 new things to ensure that I'm working in a more professional, more efficient and more transparent manner. And some of these things, uh, I think founders struggle to bring that change. They just feel that, you know, what they've been doing worked. Now they've got more money to do it on a larger scale, but also... Uh, not think about how they need to use it to fix what they've been doing wrong. So some of these things is, I think, what matters in this ecosystem. I think that's that's a great note to end the podcast on. Some of the insights that you shared, Abhishek, on fundraising, India, the trends that are taking place in the B2B space have been really, really great. And I've thoroughly enjoyed this chat. So thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks, Akash. Thanks for having me and good luck with the show. It was, you had some great questions. Enjoyed speaking to you. What a great way to mark the 10th episode. Thank you so much, Abhishek. Your insights, both as an investor from a CVC and a VC firm perspective, is invaluable and much appreciated. Well, if you liked that episode and would like to continue receiving more such knowledge, please subscribe to our podcast. And while you're at it, leave me a rating and review so that others may discover the same. We're still quarantined people, so stay safe, practice social distancing, and do your bit to flatten the curve. Tune in again next week for another great guest, and until then, keep hustling.